So doing a, a little background to the Beatitudes uh, next time we meet, and I didn't say it this morning, but uh, I'm going to be on vacation starting Saturday for a week, so I won't be preaching in the morning or uh, teaching in Sunday school. Uh, but uh, And Pastor Dave is also going to be on vacation with us. Uh, so uh, next Sunday, Pastor uh, Heller is going to be teaching my Sunday school class, and he'll be uh, teaching in the uh, preaching in the morning, and then uh, our uh, brother Charles Shearer is going to be uh, preaching next Sunday night. Uh, so we invite you back for those services, but uh, I'm not going to be here next week. But Lord willing, I'll be here the following week, and that's when we're actually going to look at our first beatitude. But tonight, some more background information. I have that two weeks ago, we stressed that the beatitudes were countercultural. Went through a lot of examples of how uh, our mindset today would be just the opposite of what is taught in the Beatitudes. But that's not just in our day. It would have been true in the day in which Jesus taught the Beatitudes as well. Tonight, the theme is that the teaching of Jesus was not merely countercultural. It was contrary to the religious teaching of its day. That it was fluid in uh, opposition to what the rabbis would have taught. There's an interesting play that goes on between culture and religion. And uh, culture and religion are intertwined in a very profound way, whatever the culture, whatever the religion. The body of people that believe a certain truths, whether they be Christianity or, or a set of beliefs such as Hinduism or Shuntaism, or you name it, uh, all of it affects culture, and culture has a tendency to affect the religion as well. Depending on the society, the greater influence can be had through the religion, or perhaps the greater influence would be had through the secular culture. Many people are saying that we're living in a post-Christian era, meaning that our culture is more influenced by secularism than it is by Christianity. In fact, our culture is having more of an impact on what the church believes rather than have an impact on what uh, the culture believes. Uh, I was watching a documentary about McDonald's. and It was talking about the incredible spread of McDonald's around the world. And to illustrate how rapidly and how extensively McDonald's has spread its influence around the world that they made this one simple statement. And they said that the golden arches of McDonald's are more recognizable and easily understood worldwide than the cross. I thought it was really significant. People, more people recognize that at the Golden Arches, you can get a Big Mac. Then people recognize what the cross of Christ symbolizes. To show how our culture worldwide is being more influenced by secularism than by Christianity. So, Beatitudes are a part of a message delivered by Jesus known as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 1 and 2. And when he saw the multitudes... He went up on the mountain, and after he'd sat down, his disciples came to him. 
and opening his mouth, began to teach them, saying, The occasion for the Sermon on the Mount. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So we have three questions. Number one, did Jesus go to the mount to avoid the crowds? There would be those that say he did. Or did Jesus go to the mount to better minister to the crowds? Uh, I would submit to you that it's the latter. That having seen the crowds, he goes not to depart from them, but to better minister to them. We certainly know that according to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, that there were a great multitude of people that came. If you notice on page 2, under point B, I have Matthew 7, 28 and 29 recorded. It says the result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. So it's not just the multitude, but the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. Jesus probably spoke to thousands of people, the Sermon on the Mount. Thousands of people. So he went up onto a mountain for two reasons. One, to be more easily seen and observed as he was above them and they could look up to him. And secondly, so that he could be more easily heard. If you're on the top of a mountain, you're on the top of a hill, people that are below you can hear you better than if you're on a plane. And uh, so that's one of the reasons people go. Now, here's a little known fact that uh, is rather interesting. How many people have been to Victory Valley? Been to Victory Valley? Can you picture where the bell is? In Victory Valley, you go out uh, the uh, white building there, which is the dining hall. And right next to it is the bell. It's up there on the hill. Well, years ago, I used to be program director at Victory Valley. And there'd be kids all over the place at, at the valley. Well, if I would bring that bell and get people's attention, I could holler loud enough from up there that everybody in the camp could hear me. Really. I could, and I did, I hollered, okay, and some of you heard me, I can holler. But standing up there, I could be heard throughout the camp. And I could give directions as to what we're going to do, if the program was going to change or whatever. I had no bullhorn, I had no uh, electric amplification, but because of the way that the valley was situated, you can picture that from there everything's downhill, you could be heard. Well, Jesus goes to the mountain to be heard. And thirdly, did Jesus go to the mountain as a symbolic act? There are a lot of commentaries that point out that here Jesus is teaching from a mount and they uh, quickly run to the many times in which God appears and teaches from the mount, whether it be Mount Sinai and uh, declares the word of God, etc., etc. Even today we talk about mountaintop experiences, meaning that we have a close relationship to the Lord or this was a, a special movement of God. I don't know how much we're to see in that. But uh, anyway, taught from the Mount. See, the audience for the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Uh, these were followers. I, I think that we have the immediate disciples coming closest to Jesus. And then you have the, the crowds coming. But these were at least professed followers of Jesus. These were people who were seeking to identify with him. And then next, the delivery on the Sermon on the Mount. 
And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, I just wanted to point that out because my sitting is more biblical than to stand to preach. Okay? Just, uh, just thought I had to get that out there. Alright, so we've actually moved to a more biblical format. I'm teasing you now. Alright, but moving on. His disciples came to him and opening his mouth, he began to teach them saying. Alright, so characteristics of Christ's teaching. Well, it was personable. He opened his mouth and began to teach them saying. So this was words taught directly from Jesus to the disciples and to the multitudes. The teaching of Jesus was authoritative. We want to look at our background and see two primary thoughts. And that is that the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is radical. It's radical. It is totally different. And it's radical in two ways. First, it's radical in its authority. Notice Matthew 5.20 For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 7, 28 and 29 closes the Sermon on the Mount. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Jesus claimed for himself authority. I say to you, and he was authoritatively interpreting the scriptures. That's what made it unique. I'll say more about that in a few moments. And then secondly, it was radical in its content. Because it was so divergent from other things that they had been taught. It was so contrary to the teaching of the Pharisees. It was so different. Which brings us to see. There is a stark contrast with the teaching of Jesus with that of the rabbis. Matthew 5.21 You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit adultery and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court and whoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Number one, there's a contrast in the basis of authority between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the rabbis. The rabbis based the authority of their teaching on its antiquity. You have heard that the ancients were told. There had been developed, even in the time of Jesus, a long history of teaching that came to be viewed as orthodox. It's kind of like in law where there are precedents. And uh, these precedents become case studies and they become the way in which the law is to be interpreted. Well, the rabbis had a long lineage of teaching. And that tradition became the normative way, and not just the normative way, but the authoritative way to interpret the scriptures. The rabbis were the interpreters of the scripture. And they based their authority on its antiquity. This has been what has been taught for generations. So who are you to question it? However, Jesus claimed his own authority in teaching. 
But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. So he contrasts the teaching of the ancients with his own teaching. And even though this interpretation has been handed down from generations, Jesus is going to find fault with its interpretation. And he's going to declare that he himself is authoritative. We believe today that the authoritative teaching of God's Word is the Bible. And we believe the Bible to be the Word of God, even as we have discussed this morning. But it is rather interesting that more and more what is being viewed as authoritative is not the Scriptures, but tradition. Church history. The councils. What people have taught down through the generations. And there is more and more emphasis being placed in Christianity on the antiquity of the teaching as opposed to the Scripture itself. Now, having said that, we really should wonder if someone comes up with a teaching that nobody's ever heard before. After 2,000 years, you'd think that we probably understand the Bible pretty well. And if there's somebody out there that comes up with something brand new, there's reason to question. Well, I'm not so sure. Everybody's always understood it this way. But the point is that the ultimate authority still is the Scripture. And it's not antiquity. It's not the tradition. Jesus claims for himself authority that goes beyond tradition. Next, there's a contrast in content between Jesus' teaching and the teaching of the Pharisees. Not just in uh, authority, but also in content. Then there are a number of examples here of how Jesus' teaching is contrasted with the teaching of the rabbis. The teaching of the Pharisees regarding murder. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. The teaching of Jesus regarding murder. But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And everyone who shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Secondly, there's a contrast in teaching concerning adultery. The teaching of the Pharisees regarding adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. The teaching of Jesus. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her, has committed adultery with her already in his heart. There is a contrast in the teaching concerning divorce. The teaching of the Pharisees regarding divorce. And it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. The teaching of Jesus regarding divorce. But I say unto you, that everyone who divorces his wife except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There's a contrast in the teaching concerning those. The teaching of the Pharisees. Again, you heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. The teaching of Jesus concerning those. But I say to you, make no oath, oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, and it goes on. There's a contrast in the teaching concerning revenge. The teaching of the Pharisees concerning revenge. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The teaching of Jesus concerning revenge. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
There's a contrast. Concerning love, the teaching of Jesus concerning love, uh, Pharisees concerning love. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The teaching of Jesus concerning love. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, as we look back at each one of those, there is a, in bold print, because this is the New American Standard, when you see bold capitalized print like that, it means here is a quotation from the Old Testament. But then it goes on. You see, here's the authoritative word. Here's what the Old Testament said. And then you have the application of what the Pharisees did with it. And Jesus says, ah, but I say to you, okay, this is the interpretation you should have of the Old Testament. Three, the contrast is between an external righteousness and a righteousness of the heart. A contrast between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Matthew 5.17 Do not think when I came to abolish the law of the prophets, I didn't come to abolish but to fulfill. I didn't come to do away with the law. I didn't come to set the law aside. But rather to fulfill it. Now that is a slap in the face of the Pharisees that many times we don't recognize. Let me go to the next one and then I'll elaborate on that. Jesus pulls no punches regarding the significance of the difference between his teaching and that of the Pharisees. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is the most amazing thing about Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, unless you are more righteous than the Pharisees, you're not going to heaven. Unless you are more righteous than they are, you're going to be damned. You're going to be cursed. Man! If there was anybody that was going to go to heaven... And they're thinking it was the Pharisees. If there was ever a group of people that were righteous, in their mind, it was the Pharisees. And Jesus says, unless you're more righteous than they are, forget it. Now, why would he say such a thing? Well, two reasons. First, if you look at all of those things, we went back over, I'm not going to read them all again. But if we were to do that, you would see, on each occasion, the teaching of Jesus is more stringent than that of the Pharisees. The standard is much higher. They said, if you commit murder, Jesus said, if you call somebody a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. Okay? Adultery. Whatever the situation, Jesus' standard is much higher than their standard. Why is that? Notice Matthew 5.17. Page 5. Letter 3. A. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Jesus is accusing the Pharisees 
of seeking to set the law aside by their interpretation. It was a way to get around it. And the Pharisees were huge for coming up with all of these interpretations for ways to get around obeying the law of God. Let me just give you one simple uh, example. Because you'll read in the scripture concerning a Sabbath day's journey. A Sabbath day's journey. Now, what is a Sabbath day's journey? Where does that terminology originate? Well, the Pharisees would have these incredibly minute, detailed, okay? You go in my office, I've got volumes and volumes of the Talmud, okay, that are this thick, and I guess there are 20 volumes of them. And they're interpretations of the law of God. It was the way in which they said, you must obey. You shall not do any work on the Lord's day. Well, man, did they lay that out, okay? So that if you were a farmer and you spit on the Lord's day, you created a, a uh, indentation in the ground. And that indentation would be paramount to plowing. And therefore, you have sinned by working on the Lord's day if you spit on the ground, okay? A Sabbath day's journey. The rabbis taught that you were not allowed to travel on the Sabbath day. That would be work. You can't, you can't travel on the Sabbath day. And so they determined how far would it be legal to go on the Sabbath day. How far is too far to walk? Well, you've got to give the rabbis credit. They were pretty ingenious about solving these difficult questions. And so they came to the conclusion that it must be okay to walk from the outermost places where the children of Israel camped to the tabernacle and back again. Okay, that wouldn't have been wrong to walk to the tabernacle, right? So that must be okay, which is close to... Uh, five-eighths of a mile. It's close to, uh, you know, the metric mile. About five-eighths of a mile. So you can walk that far. And so you can walk from your home five-eighths of a mile. Ah, ah. But they were always good at the, ah, but, 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 where is my home? Because they were nomadic people. They had tents. They didn't. A lot of times I have a permanent place of dwelling. The rabbi said the home is any place where there is food and shelter. So, if you wanted to walk more than five-eighths of a mile on the Sabbath day, you went five-eighths of a mile, you put down a piece of crumb, you put down a thread, which symbolized food and shelter, and you walked another five-eighths of a mile and put down thread, and, and, uh, and you could do that. Okay. Unless you think that that is too strange, that is why Jesus asked the the, gives us the whole parable when uh, Jesus teaches that we should love our neighbor and they say to him, but who is my neighbor? And then you have the parable of the Good Samaritan in which Jesus teaches that your neighbor is not just the person who lives next door to you or not even the person who's of the same ethnicity as you are. It's a person who's in trouble. 
You're going to love all of those, those people. So Jesus says, I didn't come to get around the law. And I didn't come to nullify the law. I came to fulfill the law. Motivation. Heart. I came not to get around it. I came not to make excuse. I didn't look for loopholes. I came to fulfill it. Next, there is a contrast to the motivation for being righteous between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the Pharisees. The motivation for the Pharisees is to appear to be righteous in order to gain man's approval. The Pharisees really weren't concerned about being righteous. They were concerned about being viewed as righteous. They were concerned about what people thought about them. They wanted to be considered to be righteous. But they really weren't concerned with being righteous. That is the classic example of what the scripture refers to as referring to a hypocrite. A person who isn't concerned about what's going on on the inside. It's only about what is seen on the outside. Now, notice Matthew 6.2. When therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. When you pray, you're not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. And whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. That's what motivated the Pharisees. That's what nullified their righteousness. They weren't concerned about pleasing and honoring and glorifying God. They were concerned about People looking at them and say, my, aren't they righteous? Aren't they good people? Aren't they devout? Aren't they holy? Aren't they something special? Aren't they committed? Aren't they? And that's what they were after. People looking at them and marveling at their righteousness. B, there's a contrast in the nature of the blessing that is to be obtained between those who follow the teaching of Jesus and those who follow the teaching of the Pharisees. Those who follow the teaching of the Pharisees have their reward in this life in the approval of men. Let me say it again. Those who follow the teaching of the Pharisees have their reward in this life in the approval of men. When therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. That's all they're going to get. God's not going to praise them. God's not going to lift them up. That's their full reward. It doesn't get any better than that for them. That's what they're after. That's what they get. Man's of praise. Matthew 6, 5. Again, they have their reward in full. Matthew 6, 16. They have their reward in full. In full. Those who follow the teaching of Jesus have their reward in the life to come 
in the approval of God. Matthew 5, verse 3, the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the difference. The Pharisees have their approval. They have their award in this life through men. But the poor in spirit, they have their reward in heaven. Now, I'm not going to go into this great detail because I'm going to spend the next time we get together looking at the first beatitude, which is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the poor in spirit. But I want to at least point out enough that I can round out this thought. The poor in spirit are the beggarly in spirit. would actually be a good translation of this. The one who begs. The one who begs. Jesus teaches that we should be a people who in our spirit are begging God in relationship to the kingdom of heaven. Remember the story about the, the Pharisee and the publican? The Pharisee's standing in the temple and he's praying and saying, Lord, I'm thankful that I'm not like these other men, like this, this publican over here. I'm glad I don't do all these things that he does. And then it turns around and then the publican says, Lord, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the person who's justified. That's the person who uh, is acceptable to God. The Beatitudes are vastly contrary to the teaching of its day because they were emphasizing external righteousness, which didn't fulfill the law, but was a way to get around the law. Jesus said, I came to teach about fulfilling the law. And you can't do that. You can't do that. If you're going to be right before God, you're going to have to beg. You're going to have to plead with God to accept you as righteous. And why the Pharisees so hated the teaching of Jesus is because, number one, they had to humble themselves. They had to take off the facade. They had to say, we are no better than the people around us. In fact, many times we're worse because we're trying to get around the law rather than fulfill the law. And we're more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. They would have to humble themselves. And they were unwilling to do that. In their pride, they wanted to say they were righteous enough to be accepted by God. And the people today thought that they were righteous enough to be accepted by God. It is an interesting study how often it is in the New Testament that Jesus is dealing with beggars. We'll look at some of them two weeks from now. But Jesus is regularly ministering to people who are standing by the road begging Jesus to be merciful to them. Not, bringing, not saying, Lord, we deserve it. Not saying, look at the good things we've done. Lord, look at my resume. You owe it to me. But they're standing on the wayside. They are the outcasts. 
They are the, the, the rejected. They are the very people that the Pharisees are trying to keep away from Jesus and saying, what in the world are you doing hanging around those kind of people? And it's those very people that Jesus ministers to. For they're crying out for the mercy of God. So, application A. We must avoid living our Christian lives for the approval of men. So much of legalism in our culture, in our society, in our church, so much of the do's and don'ts are there because of what other people are going to think. What are people going to think of me if I do this? What are people going to think of me if I do that? And we start adding to the Word of God just as the Pharisees so that we can be more righteous. So that people can say, man, wow, he's really devoted. He doesn't do this. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even drink Coke. You know, th- this guy is on fire for God. you got your reward. you got your reward. If we're going to put up all of these external means of being righteous, it's just for show. It's not about the reality. I tell you, it's far harder than to, to obey the Scriptures than it is man's law. It's so much easier to wear a white shirt or a long sleeve shirt or only a cotton shirt or whatever the human rule is. It's so much easier to do that than it is to live a truly righteous and holy life. And our motivation ought to be not so that people will look at us and say, wow, is he devoted. But that God will be pleased in our sincere and true devotion while we try not to get around the Word of God, but to obey the Word of God. So B, we live our Christian lives for the approval of God. C, in so doing, the lives we live will be far different from those around us. Even religious people. Even religious people. Concluding remarks. A. Jesus is the authority. Jesus must be our authority in interpreting the scriptures. Secondly, we must never allow ourselves to become an authority on life and godliness apart from the scriptures. Uh, We should not come up with man-made laws and rules for righteousness and holiness. Stick to the Bible. And righteousness is not external. It's internal. Jesus says that time and time again in so many different ways. It's not the outside of the cup, Jesus says. It's the inside of the cup. Jesus refers to the white-walled sepulchers. Looks good on the outside. But man, inside is death and ruin and destruction. It matters not what goes in the mouth, but, but what comes out of the mouth, Jesus says. It's not about externals. It's about internals. It's about motivation. Why do we do what we do? It ought to be to praise and honor and glorify God and seek to be obedient to Him. It should not be to show off and try to develop a reputation among others so that we can be exalted, put on a pedestal, and people say, wow, now there is a dedicated Christian. That's not the motivation. And that's not the way to true righteousness. True righteousness 
is an inward begging. God, I am not what I ought to be. That ought to be the unified testimony of every single person here. We all ought to be able to say, God, I am not what I ought to be. And if you can say that with sincerity, God, I am not what I ought to be. That's the very foundation of righteousness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God, I really don't obey you like I should. There are so many areas of my life in which inwardly I am far from you. I struggle. That is a righteous person in the Scriptures. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you and praise you. Help us to be truly righteous people who are not trying to simply look righteous so that others may be impressed. But Lord, may we seek to fulfill the law, not to set it aside, not to change it, not to abolish it, not to add to it, not to take from it, not to follow man's standards so that mankind can be happy with us. But, Lord, to follow your standards so you be pleased with us. And, Lord, may we recognize that so many times we just fall, fall short of what we ought to be. And help us to understand that that's exactly what you want us to understand. And that we might rejoice in the mercy and grace of God who makes us righteous by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, by his obedience and not ours. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.